sure do enjoy that singing and so thankful for brother Nate uh, leading it doing a great job appreciate Miss Becca playing tonight music the singing this morning tonight it's all been wonderful and I just want to remind you I have trouble with this sometimes I'll be singing a song and uh, I'll just be thinking about singing it the way that I remember it in my head but we have what is called a song leader (laughs) song leader And it's usually the way it works is that we follow the song leader. All right, so I'm just throwing that out. Brother Nate, you don't have to apologize if we all sing it wrong. Just tell us, and we'll sing it better. Amen. All right, so I am thankful for that. I am looking forward to Brother Fiavai opening up his island daycare. That's going to be a blessing. And uh, your kids will learn how to surf and boogie board. So praise the Lord for that. The Island Daycare. Man, I just came up with that sitting right there. Aren't you impressed, Brother Phil? Yeah, that's good. All right. Oh, brother. Okay. And then, um, again, what Brother Max said, sure are thankful for everyone that's uh, listening and being a part of the service tonight. All right, Esther chapter 4, continuing our series out of Esther chapter 4. To all of our guests, thank you for being a part of the services tonight. And uh, we are continuing through this series in the book of Esther. Uh, Before we get to the reading, um, we're going to have a special speaker next Sunday. Um, We have some dear friends in Arizona, went to college with them, 
and then they planted a church. They've been here before. Uh, they're close with the Hetzer family as well. Uh, but John and Misty Bott and uh, their three children, Nia, Nason, and Nolan, and he planted, or they planted a church in Scottsdale, and so he's going to be preaching at least on Sunday night, and that'll, that'll be a blessing, and I'm still contemplating considering Sunday morning, um, uh, but uh, definitely looking forward to you hearing from him and that how the Lord will speak to you through that. All right, Esther chapter 4, if you'll remember, the, the announcement has just been made, the deal has been made between uh, Haman and uh, Ahasuerus about killing all of the Jews. And so now we begin to see the response to it in chapter 4. When Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and a bitter cry, and came even before the king's gate, for none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews, and fasting and weeping and wailing And many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So the thought tonight is this. The first best response, or excuse me, the best first response. The best first response. Father, thank you that we get to be here tonight. I know it's a a different passage just to be reading this part of it. And yet, Lord, it's here in the text. And Mordecai, as well as all of the people of the nation of Israel, their response to this crisis is an opportunity for us to examine our own responses to the crisis that we face. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us, um, uh, not, not just for what's going on in our nation, but to understand that we'll have trials and adversities in our own lives, and that we are in need to have a habit of responding to you first. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to get that tonight and that you would speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Thanks so much for standing. So it's really challenging to comprehend what would be going through Mordecai's mind when he heard the news, when they read the decree from King Ahasuerus about what Haman had received permission to do, that on a very specific, on a very certain day, all of the Jews, had re- there was given authorization to kill all of the Jews. Now, no matter how you look at this, this is, this is terrible news. This is horrific. It's bad. There is nothing good about this news. And, and it's hard for us to comprehend that much death all at one time. Just for some perspective, I was doing some digging about what is said to be the current percentage death rate of the coronavirus right now. And uh, I, I, I wasn't expecting this. I'm having a whole lot of trouble actually tracking down 
a firm number on this, which just tells us there's differing opinions and there's a whole lot that's in fluctuation. But based on what I could do, and please don't hold me to this, I did a lot of digging and was unable to track it, track down a firm number. But it's somewhere, um, based on what I read, between 0.3 and 1.3, somewhere around there would be what experts say is the death rate. But then you have to factor this in, and many of you would already know this or be thinking about this, that there is a difference between dying with something and dying from something, and uh, actually how those things are being reported. And so there's all sorts of things going on. So let's just say, for a reference point, that the death rate is at 1%. Again, I'm not stating that as firm. Just for a reference point, that is one of the major crises going on in our nation right now. Let's say that it's at 1%. The death rate that the Jews were facing wasn't 1%. It was 100%. No, the world superpower... King Ahasuerus had given declaration, had given his royal seal that on a certain day, every Jew, man, woman, child, young, old, every Jew could be killed and have the authorization, the approval of the government. The complete annihilation of an entire group of people was authored by this king through the deceptive wickedness of this counselor named Haman. So you can understand that when you're facing this level of death, this level of loss of life, that upon hearing the news and understanding all of the ramifications, that there would be a great public outpouring. Now, we're familiar with outpourings, we're, we're familiar with outward demonstrations, and depending what they are and when they happen, there are times for public outpourings and public demonstrations. But I want you to take note from Scripture what this public outpouring consisted of. Look at verse number 1. Mordecai, and it begins with him. Mordecai, in verse number 1, rent his clothes. So there was a way in these Middle Eastern cultures where they would publicly tear their clothes as a sign of distress in mourning. And then the text says that he put on sackcloth, and it would be this coarse, rough kind of material that you typically wouldn't use to clothe yourself with. And then on his head, he would put ashes. And he went out into the midst of the city, the text says, and he cried with a loud and bitter cry. Now you've heard of things like in Jerusalem of the Wailing Wall and in other regions where there is some kind of public outpouring or expression of guilt or of sorrow or a plea for help that the cries are very piercing and they're very, very loud. But it wasn't just Mordecai. In verse number three, and in every province whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews and fasting and weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes all around the kingdom. To one degree or another, the Jewish people unite in pouring themselves out in this outward demonstration of humility and grief and in seeking for help. Now, there are two things that are obvious about this. Number one, it was obvious that something was wrong. 
Hey, I, just the, the language of the text is interesting. Look at verse number 15 of chapter 3. The post went out being hastened by the king's commandment, and the decree was given in Shushan the palace. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city Shushan was perplexed. When Mordecai perceived all that was done, then the mourning begins. And so you have the king and this wicked counselor, they just go on about their business. And then you have the people in the palace who are kind of confused about what, what is going on, what's motivating all of this. And then you see a man like Mordecai who had some influence and who had some notoriety at the time. And then you see all of these people coming together and they are pouring out themselves to God. They, they are rending their garments, they're, they're putting ashes on their head. Okay, I, I enjoy camping with our kids, and one of my kids' favorite things to do is to take the ashes, put them on their face, and pretend like they're some kind of warrior or something. Like, we're going stealth, or something like that. And it's just filthy. It, it, you, you don't want it in the tent, let alone in your house. I mean, they're just, they're just gross, and yet they are intentionally putting ashes on their head. They are fasting. They're doing without food, and they have these loud, piercing, wailing cries. So, number one, it's obvious. You would look at them and you say, obviously something was wrong. Number two, and I know both of these are very obvious. Number two, they were seeking help. This morning wasn't the cries of someone who was giving up. It wasn't the cries of someone who was hopeless and who didn't have any other options. It was a demonstration of the seriousness of the current circumstances and how desperate they were for someone outside of themselves to help them. So we need to ask the question, whose help were they desperate for? Okay, let me remind you in the book of Esther, we talked about this in chapter 1. The name of God is not mentioned. Okay, so Why? I can't give you all the reasons why, but here's what we do know. God is all over the word of God, <laughs> and for whatever reason, he chose, and we believe that this book, including Esther, is inspired and preserved. We believe we have the word of God. <laughs> okay. So for whatever reason, his name is not mentioned here. I'm not get, even going to begin to try to get into or understand all the technical reasons why. It's just the way that it was recorded. But based on what it says in other scripture, and based on how the behavior of God's people and the response of God in the book of Esther, this is what we can say. This wasn't just some random shot in the dark that they were doing what had, done been, what had been done before them. They were doing what had been done after them. And God did what was done before them. And what was done after them, God did for them what he had done in the past, what he would do in the future, that there was a plea to God to help them. Now, I understand that it doesn't say his name, but this was evidence born out in the lives of other people before and after. This was what they did to seek God. Let me just, this isn't all of them, but just think about these people. Moses fasted. In the mount, 40 days, 40 nights. Job sat in sackcloth and ashes when he dealt with the loss of all his children. Daniel fasted and prayed. Nehemiah, when he heard of the reproach of Jerusalem and how the city was broken down, he fasted and prayed. Jesus fasted and prayed in the wilderness. The church in Acts, when they were seeking God's help and his power, they fasted and prayed. So in, in all of these instances where you read about people of God that are fasting and praying and putting on sackcloth and ashes. Even think about this. Nineveh fasted. 
and prayed and put on sackcloth and ashes. You think about all of these different instances, it was an effort to seek God. And so while the name isn't mentioned, the effort is consistent with someone who in a very difficult circumstance was seeking the help of God. So when circumstances were worsening, the first response of God's people here in Esther chapter 4 was to turn to God without reservation. Now, remember, Mordecai had some access. This, this government, in order to be fair, this government was not a representative government. This was a king in charge, and if he doesn't like you, he can kill you, and if he likes you, he can promote you. But Mordecai sat in the king's gate to some degree. He did have access. Mordecai had some influence through the event that transpired in chapter 2 at the end when he rescued the king from the plot to take his life, and he had influence through Esther, which we'll deal with shortly in the coming weeks about how that was utilized. And he could, have, he could have turned to all of those things. He could have said, hey, hang on, I sit in the king's gate. I have this influence. I did the king a huge favor. I am going to, I'm going to try to leverage these different influences and these deeds that I've done and try to get a payment, receive that back for how I've invested in the kingdom. He could have gone through all of that. But there's two reasons for not. Number one, the, king, the kingdom did not operate like that. Number two, Mordecai understood where the greatest source of help was. And it wasn't with other men. No, the greatest source of help was not with other men. Even, even if he could have marched in there and said to the king, Hey, king, can you, do you even know what's going on? What's wrong with you? Mordecai understood, and many of the Jews understood this as well, that the greatest source of help, regardless of whether or not we have an advocate in the kingdom or before the, the earthly throne, the greatest source of help is not another man. It's not, a, okay, humanity. It's not a man, it's not a woman. The greatest source of help is the God on whom we can call. Notice, they didn't rail and begin to destroy others. They humbled themselves to seek God in desperation. One commentator said this, a thick cloud of sorrow hung over the kingdom. You know, that was evidence of this that these people of God calling out to God, they were not concerned with what others thought about them. <laughs> okay, just put yourself, bring this into today, and say we have somebody walking down the boulevard, and their clothes are obviously torn, ashes on their head, and they're wailing. Number one, you're going to pull out your cell phone. That's what you're going to do, because we live where we live, don't pretend you're not like that. You're like, I'm going to be the first to post it. <laughs> yeah, then you're going to send it to a couple of people. And then you're going to kind of think something like this. Uh, kind of weird. Children, stay away. So I understand that this is not our custom, and it would have been customary. But they were not concerned with what other people thought about them. This is what they were concerned about. Will God hear us? And will God respond to us? Here's the statement for them. When the storm, and please get the wording here, when they could see the storm approaching, 
when they could see the storm approaching, here's the significance of that. The storm hadn't yet arrived in full force. Are Are you with me here? No, the announcement had been made. Preparation was being made. But the storm had not yet arrived in full force. But when they could see the storm approaching, their first response was this, to seek God without reservation. Meaning this, we're not going to hold anything back. This isn't, mm, you get the impression of this? You Look at verse number four, just to drive the point home. In verse number four, so Esther's maids and her chamberlains came and told it her, then was the king exceedingly grieved. She's grieved. She doesn't even know what's going on yet. And we'll talk about this more later, but there was a very distinct role between the king and his queen, and she wouldn't have known everything that was going on. It's not like she had access to every bit of information, so her heart is grieved for Mordecai's grief, and her heart is grieved for all of the mourning that's going on, and she sends raiment to clothe Mordecai and to take away a sackcloth from him, but he received it not. They are sold out out to seeking God. It's not, it's, not just, it's not just okay, on this day we'll get together and we'll do it. It seems as though from the text that this effort to call on God consumed them. It was the most important thing that was going on in their life. You say, how long did they do it for? It seems like quite a while. You say, do you have a timeline? No, I don't exactly have a timeline. I know that after Esther finds out, she sends word, and then she requests three days of fasting and praying. And so we know that it went on for more than a day. But given the, the wording of the text, it seems like it went on potentially for days, maybe even more. When the storm was approaching, they cried. their first response was to cry out to God without reservation. All right, so let's make some application. Number one, things have gotten weird. Things have gotten bad, but can I tell you, things don't just get bad overnight. They build. It's it's just like, it's just like in a marriage. Marriage doesn't fall apart just all in a day. No, there are problems under the surface that build. There are things that can be, you know what I'm talking about here. It's not like when you're raising your children, your children just all of a sudden decide to go off the deep end, but there are things that build over time. Now, whether you agree with this or not, this is how it works, I'm telling you. It's not like you just go from here, from over here. This stuff builds. And as a nation, it, we can act like, well, I just, I just can't believe this is happening. No, these things have been building, and there, there are traceable factors that we are observable factors where we can look and we can see, man, this nation is not trending towards God, it is trending away from God. And so things have gotten weird. We can even say that they are getting very difficult or they are bad or for some they have been bad. But I want to remind you of this just to help our perspective because if all you're doing is sitting around watching the news, you can get really, really depressed. And so I'm here to help you. Whether you, and apparently by the look, some of you don't want the help. But things can get much worse. Okay, let's just, again, I'm not... It, one life is too much. Do we all agree with that? I feel like I explain that every time we talk about this. But the nature of living in a sin-cursed world is that we're all going to die of something. So we're talking about somewhere around a 1% death rate as opposed to what they were facing here, which was a 100% death rate. We're not even close to approaching that. 
Let me give you some other things that have happened. In the 1900s, it sounds weird to say that. I was born back in the 1900s. Yeah, back when this guy named Reagan was president. Yeah, it's the 80s for y'all who aren't doing the math. So I heard, for everyone watching on live stream, Brother Z told me that there was a whole lot of confusion when I made the statement that I have 13 more months in my 30s. That is, I have another month until my next birthday, and then another 12 months until the birthday after that. So anyway, I just wanted to give clarity about that. Sorry, I got really distracted there. So back in the 1900s, there was a massacre in Rwanda in 1994, between 500,000 and 1.7 million people were killed. Between 250 and 500,000 women were violated. In 1941 through 1945, the Holocaust, between 5 and 6 million Jews, two-thirds of Europe's Jewish population was murdered. In 1932 to 1933, there's, there's debate over this, but what's called the Ukrainian genocide, somewhere between 1.8 and 7.5 million Ukrainians were killed in the Soviet Union. In Cambodia, from 1970 to 1975, I think, between 1.3 and 3 million Cambodians were killed but somewhere between 10 and 33% of the population. It's impossible to wrap your mind around that kind of death in this country. Let's just be honest. It's really hard for us to even begin to grasp that kind of suffering and that kind of loss. There have been so many. That's just four things. That's four man-made catastrophes or travesties. There's so many other genocides, tragedies, natural disasters, famines, even things that have happened in this country, and we need to be reminded that it can get much worse. And we, we think, man, this is just as bad as it's ever going to get. You really have no idea how bad it can get. And one of the things that we learn from history is that we really don't learn anything from history, and it would be good for God's people to go back and do some studying about how bad it's been for people. And before we start panicking and throwing tantrums and pushing all of the panic buttons that we can to remember that it has been way worse for a whole lot of people that have existed on this earth. It's been a whole lot worse for a whole lot of God's people. And man, we get to come and sit in an air-conditioned building and you say, well, we don't get our coffee. I know it bothers me too. Because y'all do better job. Never mind, I'm just kidding. I was about... I'm about to mess around. I'm just playing. We don't, we don't get coffee and we can't shake hands. I, mean, I miss shaking hands. You know, the handshaking time where we get together and we're just like, let's play the piano and just go hug everybody. And I, I like that time. I'm, some of you don't, apparently. I miss that. The, the Sunday school, the nursery, I mean, Bible school. All these things that normally would be going on right now, I miss those things. But let's not pretend like we're suffering some great heavy persecution. We really need historically, biblically, and secularly to keep all of this in perspective. No, it's frustrating. It's, there's some fear and concern. But let's not pretend like this is the worst thing that's happened in the history of God's churches or in the history even of this nation. 
Here's number two. How bad does it have to get before we seriously turn to God? I, I mentioned this, and I really want to drive this home. Mordecai and the Jews could see the storm coming. If you go back and look at it, they, it you have to look into chapter 3 specifically. But the genocide was announced, I believe, approximately 10 to 11 months in advance of when it was going to happen. And I don't, I don't know all the reasons why it was given that, that much time. Maybe it was because Haman was hoping that some of the Jews would just flee and they wouldn't have to deal with them. Um, maybe you just chalk it up to this, and I don't think this is a bad place to land, that it was just the sovereignty of God. And using the arrogance of Haman, like, I can announce this 10 to 11 months in advance, and now I can bask in my glory, and then they can see this coming, and they can't do anything to stop it. Maybe it was just God using his arrogance to turn the whole plan on its head. I don't know why, but I know that from the moment that they were able to comprehend the order, Mordecai took the danger seriously. You know how we know he took it seriously? Because he was seeking God seriously. So this is a good question to ask. How bad does it have to get before God's people get serious about seeking him? I say that about myself as well. Our nation is steadily paying the price for rejecting God. He must be more than some kind of weekend activity. Seeking him, loving him, living for him, and loving, loving others with the love that he has given to us. It must be a part of our daily life. Christianity isn't something that we do on the weekend. You, know, you, see, you see people that are headed up into the mountains on the weekends, and they, they take their campers, and they take their boats, and I'm, I'm all for that. I enjoy those things. But so many of God's people have that kind of casual approach to their relationship with God. And, and we want to pretend, and, and I, can, I, I see this, we want to pretend as though God ignores the sin of this nation. We want to we act like as though the accumulation of innocent bloodshed, the accumulation of crimes that are not properly punished, the accumulation of selfishness and immorality and perversion that isn't just tolerated, but it's encouraged and it's promoted, that the accumulation of all of these things does not offend a holy God. And we fail, like Mordecai, we fail to see the storm that is coming. Because a nation cannot become this sinful. A nation cannot become this self-absorbed. A nation cannot consistently, over and over, turn its back on God. And there not be natural consequences for that. And yet we just kind of, yeah, it'll, it'll get back to normal. And my job and my retirement and my plans. And, and I'm not saying we shouldn't be concerned about those things. But at what point do we take seriously, we need to seek God how bad does it have to get? You know what was interesting? Think back with me. The, the, how many of you remember 9-11? You remember where you were? Uh, you remember the response of our government officials, Republican, Democrat, and otherwise? Remember them out there on the steps? I think it was the Capitol building, God bless America. You remember how long that lasted? Like half a second. Okay, it is a little bit longer than that, but, but it was like this national unity, and we need to pray for our nation and do all those things, and how quickly we forget. 
And as long as things return back to normal and I'm comfortable and I get to live my life my way, then it's, then it's all good. You know what Mordecai recognized? It's not all going to be all good. 10, 11 months out, he recognized the real danger and he seriously sought God. You know, I asked myself, why is it that I struggle? Why, why do I? Why do I struggle to seek God consistently? Sometimes we just get really comfortable. Just be honest. Okay, hey, praise the Lord. Don't be upset about this. We have it good here. Yeah, it's good. I'm thankful to live where I live. I'm thankful for it. Uh, I'm not just thankful for America. I'm thankful for Idaho. Let me just give a real quick shout out. I'm thankful for the 2C. <laughs> I'm thankful for the 1A too because this church, is, this church, we cover the whole valley, hallelujah. We got the 1A and the 2C. But I'm thankful for where I get to live and other places because I know that, uh, man, I'm now, I'm just, I'm thinking about Parma and I don't even know. Is that Canyon County? Yes, 2C, hallelujah, I'm good. I'm going to offend somebody here. I'm just trying to lighten this up and have a good time a little bit. Oh, I'm thankful to live where we live. Let's just be honest. We get comfortable real easy. And we don't, we don't see the danger. And because we don't see it, we don't take seeking God seriously like we ought to. I think about this. We don't want to be weird or stand out. Name, excuse me, Mordecai and the Jews, they were not worried about what their peers thought about them. They were only concerned with having God's power to help them. And it might be that we see some significant things happen in our families and in the life of our church and in our community if we get more concerned with having God's power than we do the approval of our peers. I'm not, I'm not going to worry about what people say about me when I live my life. Like that. My, my goal isn't going to be to have everybody's approval and to make sure I fit in and to make sure I get this many likes. I'm just going to live out. And you say, that doesn't mean being mean. I'm going to live out the love and the passion of Jesus Christ. Uh, sometimes it might be this. We just hang on to sin. Let's be honest. Again, I'm almost done. Let's be honest. Sometimes... We don't get serious about seeking God because we know where we're at. No, we know where we're at. And in order to seek him would require some significant changes in our own lives. And that's hard. You know what it's hard to do? It's hard to admit that we are where we're at. Last point. Number one was this, it could get way worse. Number two, how bad does it have to get before we seriously turn to God? Number three, no matter how bad it gets, we can turn to God. (laughs) This is so fun. Oh, man, God is loving and patient and desires that we'd call on him. I want to remind you of this. I've heard so many foolish believers make ridiculous statements about what God is obligated to do to sinners. Can I just remind you that we all deserve the same thing? Yeah, we all deserve it. And, and we ought never be guilty of speaking such nonsense. Can I remind you of what he says, I believe, in Ezekiel? He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Hey, he says in another place that he's not willing that any should perish. He's slow to anger and of great mercy and repenteth him of the evil. He, sp- he spared Nineveh. 
for a time. It is his desire to show mercy to people. And don't, don't look at all of the news and don't look at the division and don't look at all of the confusion and you're trying to wrap your mind around it and think, what, what could God do? Here's what he can do. He can show mercy and he can give grace and he can help people. He can save people. He can elevate people. He can rescue people and he can even use something like this to bring some revival to America. I'm not going to be afraid of saying that. Look, I can't control all of that. I'm not, about, I'm not prophesying or promoting that there is going to be some great turning about of this nation. But here's what I know. If I'll be the kind of child of God that I'm supposed to be and seek him like I should, and if you will be the kind of child of God that you're supposed to be and seek him like you should, I don't know what's going to happen around the globe or even in the borders of this nation from sea to shining sea, but I do know we could see God continue to work here. And sometimes we just check out because of circumstances. Well, I mean, I just don't know that God can do anything with this. Are you serious? You think this overwhelms him? 100% death rate. And God said, you seek me, you'll find me, watch this. Oh no, God gets the last word here. I think about Psalm 2, Psalm two. why do the heathen rage? And the people imagine a vain thing. God can still work. And no matter how bad it gets, He is there for you to turn to Him. But it's not just about a nation, it's about the broken heart of a spouse or a parent or a child. It's about someone who's battling a disease. And doesn't see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's about someone who suffered great disappointment. And is trying to overcome the hurt. It's about someone who's concerned about their job. And they, they see the writing on the wall. And they look at the, the faces of their children. And they're feeling the weight of caring for them. It's about someone who's been wounded. It's about someone who's seeking forgiveness. It's about all of these things. No matter how bad it gets, you can turn to him. The best response in times of difficulty is turning to God without reservation. Please, please hey, we're almost done. Please hear me. I'm not saying it's the only response. But the best first response is to turn to God and to seek his face. Say, how long do I do it? Until you can't anymore. You know how long Mordecai and them did it? Until God began to move things. Until you can't or the need isn't there. But then this is what you do. You should continue to seek him in gratitude. The best, I didn't say it's the only response. Obviously, if the building's on fire, we call the fire department. If a crime's being committed, we call the police department. If your kid is the playing with a hot stove, you obviously, okay, Lord, just watch over them. <laughs> okay, you, you understand what I'm not saying. But when we face all these things so often, we respond with anger, we respond with despondency, we respond with drawing these lines and say, you got to be here, and if you're not here, then I'm not with you, and all of this stuff. And how about God's people just say, we see a storm coming, we need to seek him. 
Seeking him needs to consume us. We need, it needs to be a priority. The best first response is to seek God in times of difficulty. Let's all stand together with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. So with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I love this about my kids. I love this about them. That when something happens that they don't understand, when something happens that they don't like, when something happens that hurts them or scares them, I love this about my kids. First response, daddy, mama. I'm not, I'm not saying it's always justified. I'm not saying it's always legitimate. But I'm saying there's just this natural thing in them to cry out to their parents. It would be good if our, if our first and our consistent response was to call out to God. That we don't get consumed with the difficulty of the day, but neither do we ignore it and pretend that it doesn't exist and that we use it as an opportunity to seek God on behalf of our nation. To seek God on behalf of our neighbor. The best first response in times of difficulty is to seek God. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I wonder if there would be some who would, who would be honest before the Lord and raise their hand and say, I, I have allowed myself to get overwhelmed with everything going on, but it has not resulted in me turning to God like I need to. I spend more time fretting about it than I do praying about it, and I need God's help. Would you raise your hand? You say, yeah, that's me. I see him. Yep, I see him. I see him. I wonder if there would be some that raise their hand and say, I'm just kind of, I've been one of those where I'm just kind of waiting for things to get better and I'm not really taking our nation's spiritual need seriously. And I'm just, yeah, it'll get back to normal because it always does. I've been guilty of that some. And I'm not, I'm not seeing the potential danger for our nation. Would you, and I, but I know that's me. Yep, I see him. God bless you. Well, how about we do this? A message on seeking God, if we need to, maybe it'd be good to come and seek God for a moment. So while Brother Nate sings, if God has spoken to your heart, you come and pray if God has spoken to you. Simply trusting every day, trusting through us, as the 
While Miss Rebecca continues to play with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, we have some still praying. I know that God responds in different ways and at different times, and and how He responds isn't isn't always what we would desire. But I want to encourage you. You say, I've been at that altar. I've been on my knees so many times. Don't tire of seeking God. Don't tire of calling on Him. Don't tire of asking for His help. And you say, I don't, I don't really know what good it does. But this, this one thing is sure. You're not going to know if you quit. And I would rather pray. I would rather pray and be uncertain about how it's going to turn out than not pray and miss out on what could have been. Lord, help us to be a people that seeks you. And there's a whole lot of ways that we can respond to things. But God, the best first response, not the only response, but the best first response that ought to consistently be lived out is to seek you. So thank you for your people. Thank you that you love us. Thank you for the desire and the capacity, the infinite capacity to show mercy and to help. And so we pray for your blessing and your grace in our lives and in our community. Thank you for all you are to us in Jesus' name. Amen.